Welcome. Welcome back, everybody. We're here for another exhilarating episode of uh, Energy Bites. Here with my good, good buddy and co-host, Bobby Nealon. How you doing, Bobby? Doing great. How are you? I'm doing great. Rad Dad is is rad as always. And today we're here with uh, Ronnie Giles from from uh, Bit Out, CEO and co-founder. Appreciate you uh, joining us today. Yeah. Hey, thanks for coming on, guys. So yeah. it's great to uh, it's great to be on the show. Yeah. Well, I I uh, I don't know. I don't know if it's because I've done so many RFPs and RFQs and all of that stuff in my past that I appreciate the shit out of what you guys are doing and it gets me excited, but. Um, let's just kind of jump into it you know starting briefly we've you've been on some of the podcasts and stuff before so i don't want to get too deep into you know your full history but kind of walk us through you know how did you get into you've got an interesting story as far as like just randomly how you got into tech and stuff but when did you really start getting into the you know kind of tech side of things just in general whether it's energy or not Tech, probably going back, I was 13, 14 years old, just fascination with computers and the internet mm-hmm. in the mid-90s, and uh, but really more so trying to solve the current um, problems that we're trying to solve with BitOut, uh, probably about three years now. Um, I had a, a co-founder of BitOut, uh, was a great business partner, went to high school, with, really went to junior high with him as well. Um, he really reconnected with me, had an idea, was running some oil field service companies, on the sales and ops side and kind of explained to me the challenge that was going on. I was just in the process of exiting my second uh, cloud venture at that time and um, wanted to build a, a pure SaaS business, wanted to build a very niche business, most likely oil and gas. I've got some previous um, time spent in oil and gas uh, back in maybe 10 years ago. And uh, so know a little bit about it. Family's been around it. Um, and uh, so when Tyler came kind of with the idea, we we jumped into it, really started trying to figure out what the problems were. Met early on with some majors um, that explained that, you know, they they went out and did this, this uh, bid. Um, all the suppliers sent different formats of bid responses, different unit of measurements, different, you know, contract terms, everything. And there was no uniformity for them to truly compare these six or seven suppliers. Yeah. Um, she even explained to me that one of the one of the suppliers um, took a screenshot of Excel, printed the screenshot out, filled it in with like a pen, took oh a picture gosh. of the of the screenshot and texted it to them and said, "This is our bid submission." And that was actually the winning bid for like a multi million dollar water hauling job. It's like and, the least uh, surprising thing. That's yeah. the most oil field so, thing I've ever heard, <laughs> and it's not surprising at all. It's right? not surprising. Like, so. <laughs> It's uh, for us. We wanted to build a. We wanted to build it so simple that the suppliers loved it, and we didn't want to build this complex tool that, you know, something someone SAP, like SAP or yeah. Oracle yeah. would be involved with. We wanted to make it simple, and that's what we've done. And actually, making it simple is actually a lot harder <laughs> than it sounds. <laughs> yeah. Um, because it still has to be comprehensive enough to use, you know, to have the majors use it and so forth. So, um, that's what we've done, and um, we do it really well. We we try to stay in that in the lanes of procurement and uh, focus on other procurement challenges for our customers. And we've since kind of evolved the product into more than just bidding. Um, but uh, that's what we're focused on all day is yeah, uh, procurement. Nice. You say, uh, you know, you're 13, 14 or whatever. You want to dive into that? Like kind of what that looked like? Because, you know, we'd like to kind of get your evolution as a technologist even. Sure. Like, um, well, and that's, I mean, that's like the heyday of tech to me, right, is the late 90s, the mid mid to late nineties, early two thousands when it was just like the wild west and every like AOL and Netscape and 
chat rooms and Napster. Like it was, Oh, I remember it heavily. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's my father. He, um, he worked for probably mid his career for, uh, some smaller operators and then went out and, um, he was probably about 40 at the time. I was probably seven, eight and started his own small business and a small operator and, uh, ended up growing it pretty well to, you know, probably thousand wells or so and sold it off to, um, a, a group. But so I was always fascinated with small businesses. I was fascinated with being, being an entrepreneur, being a, um, being the head of a um, org. And so that really had started the fascination early on 13, 14 years old. I started mowing lawns to make money. Um, I learned very quickly instead of me mowing the lawns, I could charge somebody like 25 bucks. I could pay somebody 10, 15 to go do it. And I could keep the rest yeah. and just kind of go be the sales guy. So started growing very, very early on that way, probably 13, 14 years old. I remember I had a few hundred bucks saved up. I went to CompUSA back in the day and, uh, I, I, I was looking at some sort of video game. I don't remember which one it was, uh, but I bought QuickBooks instead. And, uh, <laughs> I was so fascinated story. with like <laughs> making invoices and like, it was so cool. And, uh, so eventually kind of back in the days there started, um, um, that was like CD-ROM probably. I was going to say, was it like, on a, a yeah. true floppy? It was, or it was CD? CD-ROM, but I do remember having, I do remember having floppies. Multiple but, floppies. Um, yeah, I, I remember having zip drives. Remember yeah. those? Yeah. Um, 100, I 100 so megs. bad because um, it had so much more storage. Yeah, we had to have them. I took a computer science class in high school and they gave us zip drives to store everything on, but I didn't have a zip drive at my house, right. so I couldn't do anything <laughs> with it. <laughs> but um, the... Uh, started hosting websites. So I started making websites for people, um, but realized if I could host them, I could get the recurring business. Right. And um, that business started growing. And by the time I graduated high school, I probably had, um, you know, half a dozen employees, maybe a dozen employees working for me. And uh, we grew that business over the next 10 years. What time frame are we talking here? Um, so started the business in 2003. Um, I was a senior in high school. I skipped school to go meet with a lawyer to incorporate. <laughs> Didn't tell my parents. Um, it was a kind of cool story yeah. and uh, grew the business over the next 10 years to 150 employees, 150,000 websites. We had offices all over the world, um, sold that business to a investment firm out of California. And um, since after that point, um, kind of backing up a little bit. Um, when I got started there, I was I was programming all night long. Uh, PHP, MySQL, um, used to Lamp Stack, I guess. Right? Lamp Stack, yeah. absolutely, and uh, would do all that myself. Uh, you know, loved to program, and eventually I grew into kind of more of just managing the business, but remained very very technical along the way. Um, you know, was managing. You know, even when I sold the business, I was still managing you know hundreds of servers um, at any time that I was you know logging into daily or yeah. things like that. I was very involved on the technical side of the business. Did y'all own the servers? Back Correct. Then? Yeah, okay. we we owned all of our own servers. Um, we uh, so when you we, say because like, you you know you said a couple times you owned cloud businesses like you were literally I mean, in the sense of like hosting your own servers as a service for people. I mean, that was kind of really yeah, kind right. of ahead of its so time. We almost. would yeah. we would lease data center space. Uh, we had data centers in Dallas. We had data centers in Singapore. We had data centers in London. Um, and we owned all the servers there. We would, you know, it was a nightmare to ship stuff to Singapore. Sure. Yeah. Um, figure out all those things. Um, so did that and uh, sold the business um, and actually went in and bought a bunch of oil and gas production. Uh, bought some working intros, mm -hmm. bought some operated wells uh, up in East Texas. And uh, um, the uh, thought I would kind of do that for a little while, played a bunch of golf and uh, realized uh a lot better at the tech side than I am at um, oil and gas. Um, for me, it was just, there was nothing to do. It yeah. was just kind of a waiting game. Yeah. Once you deployed the capital, you know, it was multiple years until you would see a great return sure. or 
commodity price would have right, to shift I was heavily. Say, you'd have to get a big swing to really hit exactly. It, yeah. So um, the uh, at that point, I had an opportunity to uh, really build a data center here in Houston. Uh, partnered with some folks, um, invested a little bit of money, and they had a lot more of the experience on the physical data center side than I did. But also took over a existing cloud business out of Atlanta, grew that to New Jersey and. San Francisco and Dallas and ultimately Houston and uh, exited that about five, six years later uh, to start bid out. So, nice. um, and then, uh, you know, really uh, you know, very involved from the technical side along the way yeah. and uh, really led the product and architecture side from bid out from the start. Um, you know, I don't, we've, we, we made the decision to hire developers on day one, you know, I probably have written five, 10% of the code um, on bid out, but yeah. um you know, still very involved from an architecture perspective, right. from a data structure perspective, but um, you know, I'm not doing all the day-to-day yeah, yeah, heavy yeah. lifting. So, so yeah. like, what are some, you know, because we kind of want to share what people are doing and like what's working. And so, I mean, what were some architectural kind of decisions that you made early on so that you could scale it? And like, what were some things that you evaluated? And You know, I think we, looking back, we would have done things a lot different. Yeah then probably where we've ended up. We had a little bit of technical debt over the last year or two we had to work ourselves out of. Um, for us, it was a, let's try to build this as cheap as possible until we can get our first client. Yeah. And uh, it took a while to get our first client. So, um, you know, there was a number of things that, you know, I think Tyler and I, my co-founder, we we kind of guessed this is how the customers would, would like it. Mm-hmm. We didn't truly know. Um, sure. our, our initial pilot client that we kind of started working with right about the time that we had the minimal viable product done, they put their assets for sale and basically told us like, Hey, we can't work with you guys. We're going to sell everything. And, uh, so we were kind of scrambling to go back and figure out well, crap, who can we work with? And we'll like kind of believe in us early on enough to try us out. Um, and so there was a lot of changes, but, um, you know, uh, going back to your question, I think, um, I think you just got to go. Yeah, I mean, you can you can plan and plan and plan forever, but if you don't ever get anything done, sure, yeah, um, I think that's the thing that holds people back the yeah. most. It, but like, was there a cloud versus on prem, you know, kind of? Decision? It was always cloud. So yeah. that's that's part of the reason why why I decided to exit and leave my my previous cloud companies. We were building like hybrid enterprise clouds in our own data centers, um, based on VMware, yeah. buying our own servers, buying our own storage, and although we were selling it and my goal was to evangelize that that was the way to do it. um, I knew deep down inside that going all native cloud was really the right way to do it. Sure. So we went native cloud on day one and um, you know, we built everything from a serverless environment. We didn't want to be dealing with, you know, operating systems and, you know, patches and upgrades and all that. So, you know, we've got a full CI CD environment um, set up. Um, You know, we can deploy code, you know, press up a few buttons. Yeah, back up and explain CI CD for people who don't know what CI CD is. Well, it really just allows you to do just like continuous development and, uh, you know, continuous deployment of features and uh, makes the process incredibly easy. And Um, testing of the code, right? Absolutely. The CI part is, well, like it's, yeah, continuous integration, continuous deployment, right? But I mean, you know, you can test your code before it gets deployed to certain environments, and um, yeah, I mean, at scale, right? And it's really focused around kind of the agile development style, generally correct. speaking, right? Is you're constantly moving and pivoting and stuff, and so being able to just click a button, <laughs> theoretically well, guess, at least, and, and you've it, been on right? both sides of it. I mean, like, there's that. Yeah, that's part of like DevOps, right? Because traditionally it was like you had developers and then operations had to deploy the code for them. But now with like these tools, like you're, to your point, like 
you know, you don't necessarily need the IT ops on the other side. No, that's right. I mean, we, um, once you get it set up right, I mean, it, it really developers just take over at that point. Yeah. And, uh, so I do a lot of the DevOps stuff and I've got everything really set up from the security perspective there. Um, and it's better to keep the developers hands out of that. Yeah. But, um, the, uh, you know, makes it makes your life so much easier. You know, you're not ever dealing with like mm-hmm. crap. Why isn't VMware working? Why isn't Ubuntu working? Yeah. It's just, just works. Yeah. That's no, sweet. So, um, and you know, if you're willing to, is that on AWS, Azure, Google? Uh, we use both AWS and GCP. Okay. And, uh, we kind of have like front end on one, we fail over to the other, back okay. end on another, fail over to the other. Gotcha. So we actually kind of utilize both for good reasons for each. Sure. Hybrid and, cloud. Um, well, I mean, that's like a cross cloud. Yeah, cross cloud. Really I call like it. This. So, um, the, uh, you know, I do think that's a big risk that people have with going all in on cloud yeah. is they talk about security and all this stuff. And it's like, well, if you're, if you're, if your login gets compromised, I mean, what good is having all your backups in one spot? And things <laughs> yeah. Like that, so. Yeah. I mean, like just cause it's in your closet doesn't mean it's any more secure than, <laughs> exactly. I mean, and, and again, like, you know, cause it, but people don't realize who there's like security of the cloud, which is, you know, AWS or GCP's responsibility. But then like it's your responsibility right. in the cloud, you know, right. you need to set up the proper firewall rules and, you know, security and everything like that. So, you know, and that's the thing too, that, um, you know, I, I was involved in a lot of these data centers and we would have clients come in, you know, hospitals and some of the large cloud companies too, that would, they would want like the bolts on their cage, like welded shut where nobody could like unscrew the bolts, like yeah. very high level security stuff. But, you know, I also would guess that a lot of these data centers in town and so forth, if I just go get like an AT&T shirt on eBay and show walk up, right in, they'll yeah. let you ride in. Yeah. And uh, so it's, uh, I think a lot of the security on some of these things is just a big dog and pony show. Yeah. So. I want to, <laughs> I want to dive into. We get pegged a lot on security for bit out. And it's like, I have to tell our clients sometimes, like, especially when dealing with our IT departments, like the whole goal of using us is to send your data out. Right. So, um, like, yes, security is a big thing for us. We take it very seriously, but we're also are sending it to everyone. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Literally a request for a proposal (laughs) that you're sending to all of your vendors. It's got to leave. (laughs) That's pretty. I want to, I want to unpack like the architecture side, because I feel like, you know, a lot of, our guests so far have primarily been on the the dev side, but you know, the back of you can't run a software if you don't have hardware to, to run it on. So I'm very curious, like what is, what is, what is that like coming from, you know, your prior uh, company where that's all you were focused on to now you're focused basically on the software and you know, how involved are you on the, yeah, so the like all, side of, all of my previous cloud companies, we, we had a very heavy software development focus internally, mostly to improve our internal operations, to automate our a lot of our yeah. internal workflows. So my first company I built, um, most things we did were automated. So our employee count compared to revenue of peers was a lot higher, yeah. um, or really it was, it was a lot lower on employee yeah. count. But um, it was mostly because we, we had a lot automated. Now, the problem is when we sold those companies, we weren't valued for the software. We were okay. still valued at like a multiple VBITDA right. or things like that. So um, nobody ever appreciated the software that we built in the past. Yeah. And uh, so that's why I really wanted to jump in and do a, like a pure play SaaS business. I've had a lot of the extensive experience in building <clears> that in the past and building the product. But a lot of times the product was only used by a handful of people right. for good purposes. Right. Yeah. So so what we all, what kind of stuff were you developing internally for those, those things? Is it 
Well, we were doing um, automated provisioning of servers where yeah, we would like, like Pixie boot a, ser a server, a, you know, we would reboot a server and it would, you know, the, the MAC address would get deployed to a configuration file and right. load an operating system remotely without everybody touching it and so yeah. forth. And so a lot of things before a lot of softwares that were doing that, you know, 15 years ago, we were doing that kind of manually and yeah. uh, built those processes ourselves and kind of engineered the whole thing. Um, so, you know, we, uh, I've been able to do, you know, a lot of things like that. Almost so. like your own CI CD pipeline, but just for your infrastructure. Uh, to exactly. A, to an extent. Yeah. yeah. Or, yeah, well, I guess but infrastructure is code in a way. Like, yeah. yeah, absolutely. So, um, but you've got to be a good person to talk about containers and virtual machines and Kubernetes and stuff. Have to. Yeah. So I know a lot about virtual machines. I know a lot about VMware. I know a lot about, um, I'm not that well-versed Kubernetes and uh, really never got into it's, it. Well, I mean, it's um, still very so, new. Yeah. Yeah. Buzzwordy. But, but I mean, I, I guess he wouldn't necessarily need to because when you're utilizing the serverless stuff, I mean, like <laughs> <That's true. laughs> AWS or GCP is handling that under the hood for you. I mean, there's that whole shared responsibility model. I mean, yeah, you can go all the way down and I just need an EC2 instance or there's all those kind of intermediate steps where an RDS instance somewhat. I mean, when you're going pretty much the full serverless with lambdas and all that kind of stuff, like they're hosting, I mean, they're probably are containerizing your code and putting it like absolutely scaling it. But you, again, that's the beautiful thing. You don't have to worry about any of that right. or have people on. It makes it so much nicer to not have to worry about like in the past, you know, I've, I've upgraded my SQL, I've upgraded Postgres, the actual database server, you know, hundreds yeah. of times, but I haven't done any of that in the last three or four years right. because mm -hmm. I don't need to. And the fact that you don't have to worry about any of that has saved us immense amount of time. And sleep. Not only <laughs> us, but from our developers would a lot of times be bottlenecked waiting on something and things like that. Right. And now we or just you don't have shut to things down to patch it or, you know, like, it's Absolutely. Just, no, it's not a beautiful so, thing. It's uh, I think it really allows us to move probably twice as fast as yeah. doing with the actual infrastructure layer. So, so like what, um, what language are you using then? Like, I mean, obviously there's a handful you can probably use with serverless, but I mean, probably JavaScript.net. Yeah. So so everything we do is kind of on a front end back end um, architecture. Sure. So our back end's all Node.js. Okay. Um, we we have some um, cloud functions in Python for yeah. various reasons. Um, but uh, and then we use MongoDB as our okay. um, as our database. Um, we were originally using a platform called Firebase DB, and yeah, that was on, our that's really, on GCP, right? Yes, yeah, yeah, that's on GCP, and it allowed us to move really fast on the get go. But it had a lot of limitations with like searching database fields and doing okay. like multi joins. And um, a lot of issues that we had to work our way out of. Switching to database is super complex, and yeah, the because they're both those are both NoSQL, right? And correct. Their own like they're unstructured. And, yeah. Yeah. So it actually, the actual migration was not hard. Um, kind of what happened for us is we had to spend. We probably spent two or three months of having a single senior backend developer focused on the data structure okay. and going through like the initial migration. And then once we kind of had things figured out, we had to throw a whole dev team on it, like 10 guys, and basically just say, nobody can do any other feature except getting this across the finish line. Because right. we've got to end-to-end -end test every single thing mm -hmm. out there. Yeah. Um, we wanted to keep all the endpoints the same. But um, we couldn't for some things because like Mongo would use like underscore ID okay. where Firebase was like ID. So there was a lot of things that had to be changed and uh, we had to go and test a million times. And uh, for us, our, our software is so time critical. Like mm -hmm. if we can't submit a bid and the bid's ending in 45 minutes, <laughs> right. that doesn't give them enough time to fix it. Yeah. Like the bid will fail. For so sure. um, we've got to make sure things absolutely work. And, uh, you know, we, we did the migration around July 1st and 
zero issues. Nice. And, uh, so I was very happy with our team. <laughs> and some uh, margaritas after that one. <laughs> it was a, it was a, it was a good thing. It was a good thing. So, um, you know, very nervous going into that. But um, I mean, we spent by the time we finished our final kind of development side of it when we probably tested it for eight weeks solid with you know almost 10 guys testing day in and day out so um it really went off well and since then it's allowed us to just take off from a feature development perspective because everything's been kind of on pause for yeah uh, quite a while before that that's great um and then on the front end side we use view um js and um you know we um you know, that was an early decision that was made by one of our initial developers. Um, I didn't put any thought into that. I knew I wanted to use Mongo. Uh, yeah. Sorry, I knew I wanted to use Node on the back end. Yeah. I was doing some of the back end development, some of the initial data structure. Um, probably, you know, I could have gone with React. Um, probably yeah. would be easier to hire more developers. Yeah, that's, that's gone the with thing. React. But I mean, I think Vue has a better developer experience like you know using it but like there's so many people using react correct like yeah from like from your side like when you want to hire you can yeah, find a lot more i think more. we get probably about a 40 percent smaller pool yeah. by, by using view but i'm very happy with it there's no reason that i would want to move away yeah uh, no, and, that's great. um so we um we just developed a um kind of a sidebar app that um that we did use react on and okay. some of our de- developers know it and they all actually came back and said we wish we had used view on it yeah so um that's, that's, that's the uh that's good. but th- these are all like view guys as well so right um, for sure but i mean I, I mean that's generally what i've heard because you know, even when i was doing my web development boot camp like react was a big thing is a big thing but like anyone who touched or did a little project with view was like man, this is so much easier to use <laughs> but yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. a that you know that momentum gets behind certain things and it's like yeah i mean there's so many more people you know again when you need to onboard someone you know maybe easier to find those people right react and cheap cheaper because there's more supply no, absolutely but no that's that's a big I, I feel like that's kind of an overlooked thing in software development when you're you know architecting or whatever it's like oh let's go use this thing because it's new or shiny or whatever or it fits the bill but then also make sure you go through and take the steps to look at, you know, talent pools of those, right? Like my, at HiveCell, you know, our whole thing was you can run Kubernetes at the edge. There's only like 50 Kubernetes experts in the world or whatever right. it was at that time. And they're all making, you know, quarter of a million dollars plus at least. And it's like, well, shit, that limits your development quite a bit, especially if you're selling to customers on the fact that they're going to be able to run it in Kubernetes and none of them have run anything in Kubernetes yeah. before, right? right. Like, make sure that you look at, you know, if you're going to be choosing a software, looking at, hey, can I find developers that are actually affordable for that? Yeah. Software, that well, and that also, tool. you know, depending on what your hiring pool is, is it, you know, are you willing to hire outside of, you know, because in Houston, I'm sure yeah. you're, if you want to hire exclusively in people like local, then your Vue.js or even React.js, you know, like very pool is very small. Yeah. Whereas like if you went more like .NET, you know, or something like that, you know, there's sure. a lot bigger um, pool of people, you know, <laughs> you know, for those. But. Um, but I think another thing to highlight there too is like, in the end, your clients don't give a shit whether no. you use React <laughs> no. or Vue or Vanilla JS. They just want it to work. Yep, you know, right. so I mean, like I think as long as you're able to provide that good user experience, I mean, most of them couldn't care less what you're using on the front end. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think you're right. Yeah. So it's uh, absolutely. But what about? I'm curious also to to pick your brain on. I'm a. St- software startup i'm looking at figuring out how i architect this how what is like your what would your approach be 
now having kind of both sides of the coin, both the back end and the the software side or the SaaS enterprise facing side, what would your kind of advice be to people around evaluating, you know, do I want to like, <laughs> we've had people, we've have had people on the show already that just they everything they do is ex- executable. There's no cloud or very limited <laughs> cloud to everything's in the cloud. We don't, you know, it, it's all managed by somebody else to the Jeff Hughes of the world who have their own servers and they maintain and manage their own all the way to, you know, the uh, co-location type stuff that it seems like a lot of the big companies are starting to move to because the cloud is also very expensive as you scale up and out. Right? Sure. So I, I think for us, it, it, it's, it's really what you want to focus on. So um, for me, we've got to focus on sales and um, sales cycle in the oil and gas space is very long. So mm-hmm. for us, it's, uh, you know, we had to keep our costs low. For us, we don't have, um, you know, billions of records mm-hmm. in our database. We don't have um, you know, we're, we're growing rapidly fast. We've got several of the top 10 majors using our platform every day. Um, however, um, you know, even five years yeah. from now, I can't envision a, a server bill being hundreds of thousands of months, uh, you know, on, on the cloud. Yeah. So I don't think it would make sense for us to kind of repatriate that back into a data center to try to save a little bit of cost for us. It's all about time savings. Right. Um, if I want to deploy, you know, we've got everything microserviced and, you know, redundant across multiple regions, um, you know, failing over from AWS to GCP, you know, it's designed very well from an architecture perspective. Yeah. But if I were to try to replicate the same thing, buying my own servers in a data center, <laughs> I, we would talk several hundred thousand dollars of, of equipment, um, you know, and, and you know, obviously probably a much you larger a team monthly to manage bill. That part, then you've got to figure in time to go deal with all that crap. Um, it's the time is the biggest part. Yeah. So for us, um, it, it, it doesn't make sense. Um, the, uh, <clears throat> I, I don't know why starting out you would want to do anything but the cloud. Um, I think once you get to some scale and have some consistent use cases, it might make sense at that point to take some of those consistent use cases. Uh, but I don't know what's going to happen in two years from now. Right. I, don't yeah, know I don't know what's going to happen next month. So, yeah, no, yeah. Um, the, uh, um, you know, for us, I think one thing I've seen a lot of startups fail is that they'll, they'll come in with a great ideal. I want to build X, Y, Z for the, for the whole business. I don't know anything about technology. So we're going to go find a dev shop somewhere and we're going to pay them a couple hundred thousand bucks. And we're going to touch base with them once a month for the next six, 12 months. And hopefully at that point, we're going to go live and launch. And what happens is the, it's the drift of the product starts to shift where the founder doesn't really know what's going on. And they get to the point of finishing it and it's nowhere. Right. It wasn't that they wanted close to what their initial vision yeah. was. And then they, they'll scrap it and start over. Or, yeah. yeah. So I think it's really important to be, um, to follow the process along the way, to be involved. Um, I think it's important to have a pilot kind of beta client yeah. that will work with yeah. you along the way and will be forgiving, um, and, uh, kind of test the product out. And, uh, um, I think that's super important. Yeah. So, but, no, that's one of my favorite books is, uh, crossing the chasm. And, you know, I don't know if you, if you've ever read it or not, but it, it basically walks you through kind of the whole idea of it is this is how you introduce technology products into the market. And this is what the market is comprised of. Right. And it's this bell curve. Mm-hmm. And it's like the very front of that bell curve is like the tinkerers and just the, the nerds like ourselves that like to mess with stuff. Right. Like it doesn't matter if it works great or if it works bad, like it's this new innovative thing and it's exciting to you because it's new and innovative, even if it is kind of, you know, 
has bugs and some things. And then you've got the visionary, which is that second part of the leg, which is the kind of the the individual or group of individuals that can generally understand the technology, but then they see how they can use that technology in the business in whatever form or fashion that may be, how it can help optimize, improve, reduce costs, whatever it may be. And then there's the chasm, which that's what where most startups fail, which is from that point to get into the 67% of the market, the main majority of the market is a big jump, right? And so the whole book talks about all of that. And it's a, it's a great read if uh, for anybody that hasn't read it, but it really helps just validate like all the shit that you go through when you're building software right. and deploying software and all of this stuff. Um, but yeah, I completely agree with you. I don't think enough people find those early tinkerers, early adopters that, you know, are okay with, well, Hey, this thing looks weird or it's not as sexy as it could be, or there's this bug that they're the ones that report the bugs. And those are the sure. people that you want using your stuff out of the gate because that's how you get that feedback loop going and you continuously improve it. And ultimately that's kind of the whole idea of the book is you have enough of those and you build out a full feature product that that mass majority actually would be willing to go and pay for now at that point, sure. right? Yeah, no, I think it's important. And I, I think because that's got to be cloud-based, um, it's yeah. I'm, I'm a huge proponent of it. Yeah. I don't know I don't know what, what really good pieces of software out there are not right now. Um, yeah. The, uh, it's tough for me to think of anything that uh, would be great without being fully cloud-based. Yeah. So, and the other hand, varying demand of you know, clients and... Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think doing things inside of a browser is incredibly powerful. Yeah. And uh, so um, the, uh, you know, the browser is uh, getting insane. What you can I was do. Gonna it say, it's I mean, getting more and more powerful by the day. Uh, absolutely. So I think by, by doing it that way, you can keep your costs low. Um, you can build a powerful tool. You can um, you don't have to worry about supporting multiple, you know, operating systems yeah. and so forth. And um, you know, it makes it really easy. So, but what, so me coming from the data analytics side, um, what kind of requests are you guys getting from say operators to, to date, to do data analytics? And are y'all looking at, you know, employing that, you know, within the app or are you, how are you, or are you supporting by, you know, do they have API access or how are you looking at like data sharing and all that? Yeah. So we do have some, we do have some data, um, integration done with existing clients through really private APIs that we okay. built specifically for them. Uh, we are in the process of rolling out a full feature filled, you know, documented API sure. that's going to be available to everybody for um, really everything across the board. Um, it allows you to, you know, create your own data lake of all yeah. the data and so forth. Um, we're putting a lot of efforts into trying to figure out how we can use, you know, AI and chat GPT and so forth to really automate a lot of these processes yeah. and just data. Um, you know, early on, we didn't have enough data to really do it all. Right? And, our, yeah. uh, you know, really try to figure out a nice data set. We didn't have a lot of data to build, to build reports. Yeah. Um, so a lot of that's uh, kind of forthcoming. A lot of that our team's really working on right now. Nice. And, um, so, um, you know, we, we've got like two types of operators that use us. We've got some that do so many bids. I mean, they're, they're building, you know, so many every day that I don't think they really care sure. about the data side of things. And then we've got some that do, you know, very fine tuned bids and they are really analyzing the data. They're spending time to analyze it and understand mm. it and look at, you know, previous bids and so forth. And, um, you know, shockingly enough, you've got some on each side that are almost the same size of operators. Yeah. So, um, I don't know why some operate one way or another, but, sure. um, yeah. Yeah. No, just think, I mean, even within it, if you're able to come up with some, you know, good models, but I guess it, it's gotta be, you gotta be careful with what data you can even like, 
technically even kind of share between, but like if you're able to like identify like, you know, is this, I guess you could say relative to historical bids from them, like this is outside of a couple yeah, standard I mean, deviations. Yeah, like, contractually we're allowed to anonymize um, data. And I was going to say, it, it so seems forth. like it would be like a but, bad choice from an operator to say, no, don't aggregate all the frack bids that you get in a basin and give me a report that shows that we're paying more than what right. the average is, right? Like that's, yeah. that would be a value add in sure. my opinion. Although I also could see well, operators I think it's being, also too but people like, can reverse engineer some of that too. If yeah, they know like the a handful operators of clients. Are always very, we use, we use workable to um, do all of our hiring. It's like an application tracking system. It's really great, but they've now got kind of a one button wizard to build the job descriptions. And um, when you type in like the title, you'll type in like inside sales rep, it'll go, I guess it goes to your website. It goes to other sources and builds like a full, like, you know, four or five paragraph job description and it yeah. takes stuff from our website. And so we're, we're looking at how can we do that on certain bids and, yeah. uh, you know, kind of automatically build some of that based on historical bids and based on how people are doing things. Um, and, uh, you know, hopefully make that process yeah. a lot easier, but no, I mean, that's a, when the first frack company I worked for in the office, once I got out of the field, that was one of the things that I was responsible for doing is maintaining our internal, it was a spreadsheet, but every time we sent out a frack bid, I would put in the basin, the operator, the sand, chemical volumes, fluid volume, like all that stuff, right? And just tracking that in a spreadsheet, did we win it or did we lose it? Right. And you can actually come up with a pretty damn good understanding of where market prices are or stage prices are in each basin just by looking at that stuff. So I think sure. as long as the uh, the operators can get over themselves in a, in a little bit of sense as far as being able to share or let you aggregate that as a whole, I think there's a huge amount of value there. I'm very curious. This is just a personal pain point for me in the supply chain uh, process is, has there any, has there been any like requests around um, like, not only just the RFP and stuff, but then past the RFP, because this is where it gets frustrating from the services side, is, you know, a lot of the RFP process is very, like, impersonal, right? And you've got all these sales guys that have relationships with the engineers, but then the supply chain person gets wedged in between them during any kind of RFP and everything has to go through them. But most of the time, those people may or may not know anything about what a frack job is or the chemicals or all that stuff. And then, so of course their job is to optimize for cost sure. in most cases. And so, okay, yeah, great. We got the best cost, but then the service on the actual job for the next year or six months or whatever sucks. <laughs> and so it's like, that's one of the frustrating things about supply chain in general to me is that there's, it's hard to like weight the value of like the service, the actual service piece with the cost piece that's associated yeah. with it. Because it seems like, once the RFPs and stuff get done, the supply chain person moves on to the next sure. thing that they have to bid out. They're not responsible for the yeah, actual yeah. performance of the vendor. So when you take things like like true commodities, like pipe and things out of the bidding mm -hmm. equation, when you go to actual services, we see that like 60% of the services are not awarded to the lowest cost. Really? And, hmm. uh, and a lot of that's because they're taking into, into consideration past performance and reputation and um, so forth. And so I think it's really important. But yeah. what it also does is it also, by going through a real formalized supply chain process, um, we see that typical operators are saving 18% across the board. We can yeah. back those numbers up with real data. And um, because what happens is when you're not consistently bidding these things out, the incumbent bidder knows they can start to creep a little mm -hmm. bit. They can start to raise the prices up. And next thing you know, you're paying substantially yep. more. 
So um, we, and we had a midstream company come to us with a certain product and said that, you know, there's no way you're going to save us money. We've got the best price out here. You know, it's, it's not even worth doing it. And his boss said, let's go ahead and try to bid it out. Mm -hmm. So um, we saved him 180,000 on his first purchase. They were buying these things every single month. Yeah. And for the last, you know, 18 months, they've almost been spending $180,000 more. And, um, you know, it just, it's the, all the suppliers know when they're bidding against other people mm -hmm. yeah. or when they have the job. Um, probably our most, uh, requested feature right now from several of our clients is they want engineers to not be able to see the pricing because what happens is suppliers call the engineers and say, Hey, I'm about to submit the pricing. Right. Where are we at? Here? Where do I need to be? And, yeah. Uh, I've had that conversation so, many times. Well, you know, it's really, <laughs> it's really just being good fiduciary, um, you know, w with the capital that the companies have employed you with, um, mm -hmm. and really using that the best way possible, uh, running a fair process on yeah. it. And um, I think just by doing that and, you know, we, we allow it to be so simplified where you can do a formalized bid in 60 seconds. Yeah. Um, you can tell your investor base that we, you know, we're being prudent with the capital. It helps on the, the ESG side, on the government yeah. side to show that you're actually um, have controls in place. Right. Um, you know, we've, it's the stories we hear about day in and day out are just, it's, they're just not even believable at times. Um, we've got a, a company we talked to recently that um, they sent out a memo to their engineers and said, we've got to start getting three bids on everything. Um, yeah. So they sent a, they actually found this email going to a supplier saying, Hey, sorry to tell you this. We've got to start getting three bids. The supplier emailed the engineer back and said, don't worry, I'll set up two more LLCs and I'll send you, <laughs> I'll, I'll send you all three. And for two or three years he was doing this. Oh, wow. And, uh, yeah. So, but I mean, I love second order consequences though. Like, I mean, Hey, that is a hustle if I have ever seen one and I, I appreciate it. But it's also so trivial. I mean, for what, a few hundred bucks to set up at an LLC each Literally. time. It's so easy. I mean, no, it's true. Well, and it, but it's, I was, this one thing I was going to say, I remember in my master's program, uh, them very much so talking about in the supply chain side of things, you it's, it is, uh, bad or poor fiduciary responsibility not to have at least two to three vendors for sure. every single service that you have because you don't know what the market is if you don't yeah. right like it it, it encourages competition right? yeah, yeah absolutely but this should probably be vetted you know history <laughs> you know like <laughs> yeah. make sure they're not owned by the same company yeah yeah person, no i fully right? agree uh, yeah <laughs> I'm not, yeah yeah but, but again it's like the best laid plans i mean yeah no <laughs> unintended consequences are so such a real thing yeah have you had any requests or anything from the operators? Cause this is, I think just personally, I think it'd be interesting. You know, of course, operators have so much data coming from so many places. It's probably pretty tricky to execute, but, uh, being able to, you know, not only have your bids, but then being able to tie that back to the actual I, jobs the on the back end. Right. Like, so currently we, we stay away from that. Yeah. And, um, you know, from what, from what we find out, it's just the, it's the implementation time to actually execute and yeah. all through with that ends up bogging down the whole organization. So mm -hmm. Most of the companies we deal with right now, um, they love that we're able to stand them up in right. you know, mm -hmm. very, very just a few hours. Um, where a lot of the software, I think one of the initial hurdles they see before we can talk to them is, well, we don't have six months to implement it. Right. We don't have all this time. We're too busy. And that's what the first thing we have to let them know is that you don't need IT time. You don't right. need... Um, you know, extensive amount of resources to do a deployment. So um, that's, uh, that's uh, I think, pretty important. Yeah. <laughs>
What about uh, working with people who like to use Excel? I mean, how, how have you guys worked worked with that? I mean, it's not a problem. I mean, we, we have the ability to import and export to and mm. from Excel. And uh, so we've got all that already built in and um, our clients use it all the time. We've yeah. got kind of internal stats to see um, yeah. how often that's being used. And you know, it's uh, very frequent. So yeah. um, it still makes it to where, you know, we standardize the process and we've got a repository of all the data right. that people could search and analyze. Yeah. A lot easier than um, trying to figure out. I mean, we've got a we've got a top ten operator right now that um, you know we we deal with. They have no repository of any of their data. That's why they that's why they moved to us. Yeah, they have no approved under list. Uh, it's all in people's emails. They're trying to find it, and over you know a long period of time, it's really wow. just kind of being pieced together. Yeah. So um, I think that's a, a lot of times how some of these um, operators have um, have worked in the past. And um, so I think we have a. You know, really simple solution to make it a lot easier for them going forward. So. Yeah, and I, you know, I remember where you, you talked to us, and it's like even just the auditability is like a huge feature in and of itself. Like huge. Just, yeah, yeah. That's. I mean, there's so much of that, especially historically in the oil field, right? Where it's like, you know, the guys buying the the field foreman, you know, guns or bringing cases of whiskey out every month or taking them to concerts or buying cars and all of that fun shit that you can have. All, I mean, audit. we don't, we don't stop that. Right. But, but having an audit trail sure. and having, you know, the yeah, ability to see that, Hey, multiple vendors did bid on right, this right. and here's all the pricing and here's who touched it and who right. opened it and who messed with it and all that stuff. I really also don't want to <laughs> gloss over the fact that how much I personally appreciate the fact that you'll have your own, platform but you have this direct integration into excel which is the tool that most of these people deal with sure. every single day and so you're not trying to force square peg round hole like hey you yeah. got to change your entire workflow over to this thing sure no we can integrate direct like there's that's kind of like an art to me as far as like the software dev side is being able to get the right data to the right person and the right, right tool where they need it and what they're used to and comfortable with that's yeah, yeah. that's really cool what what do you see? I want to know your opinions just personally on, you know, VMs versus containers versus we don't even have to get into Kubernetes, but just VMs and containers in general. Because being at HiveCell, you know, again, our whole pitch was containerization, Kubernetes. And there were still so many op people that I talked to, not just operators, but companies in general that are still running VMs that you know might be looking at containerization, but aren't necessarily sure or it's you know new so of course it's new and intimidating and you know well it's worked this way so long why are we gonna yeah break it right you're the first person I've so i i think I, I think it's not a i think it's not a one or the other i think you really more look at like legacy applications right and more like serverless or mm -hmm. really the next generation of applications i think those legacy applications are going to have to continue to live on vms yeah um until they essentially are deprecated over time right. and uh i think in certain use cases it makes sense where um let's say you have a SaaS environment but you need to connect to a, a SCADA system or something behind the firewall yeah. maybe you need like a connector device or like a bridge device that can do that and that's where mm -hmm. a, a future vm would make a lot of sense but i do think as you continue to upgrade and evolve software i do think it's removing that whole infrastructure or virtual machine layer right. removing those additional administrative burdens that come along with it it's incredibly important, yeah. but it's not a rip and replace. It's going to have to right. be a gradual scale yeah. down and, you know, scale down on the VM, scale down on the, right. and really scale up in the, yeah. 
Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, and technically, probably most containers are being deployed on VMs. If you want, I mean, like, <laughs> sure. EC, EC2 yeah. instance is a yeah. VM. It's like sure. it's not just one server. It's a partition. You know. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I still kind of look at them different. Where it's like when you're running like a true serverless environment. Yeah. It's it's like look at Office 365 and like there used to be like Exchange administrators yeah. that were at like these even small companies. I yeah. remember I used to maintain and SharePoint was hosted on prem and Oh, of course. Like in 2000 when I was 2002, 2003, I remember I used to manage a veterinarian's um, clinic in Cyprus. And they probably had 40 people there. They had their own Exchange server and uh I mean it was a it was a 30 hour a month job to yeah. administer that exchange. And like, you know, all of that's been ripped and replaced now with office 365. Yeah. You've got your front desk receptionist can manage it now. It's right. so easy. And I think apps will continue to shift yeah. that way. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that's, uh, I think that's the future of, uh, you know, I mean, just, you know, how powerful is Salesforce? Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the amount of apps that have been built around that ecosystem is yeah. uh, insane. So I'm also curious about, just the the uh, data center stuff, especially in Houston, right? Yeah. Like I worked for very briefly. I worked for a uh, basin modeling, reservoir modeling uh, software company, and one of their big, like, uh, you know, unique value props was, you know, in Petrel they were limited to how many CP. I don't even remember if it was CPUs or GPUs back then, but they were limited to whatever it was, eight that they could run the basin model on, right? And these basin sure. models were insane right like <laughs> it would take weeks to run a model on Petrel, and we could we had an infinite number theoretically of cpus that they could run on and they could run them very quickly but i did i had no idea until i worked at that job that there were all these data center like high power high performance compute centers in houston oh yeah and like there's so much compute infrastructure in houston that people have no idea uh, it used to be called cyrus one mm-hmm. i don't know if it's still called that or not but that was like yeah it's, a, it's changed to data yeah. bank and uh but uh the uh yeah i mean there's a ton in houston i you know there's still a great need for data centers yeah. that on mm-hmm. the local side on the colo side um it's a it's a great it's been great to me um but well, i think where it's really great at it's great for the for the local hospitals they're right. not gonna you know there's no point for houston methodist memorial Hermit to have their data in you know a virginia um, <laughs> aws yeah. region yeah right? um you know have it here have it with dark fiber you can maintain the security presence that you need and um where it's also really great at it's great for the government's municipalities because they're able to buy all the server equipment with bond funds okay as yeah. a big capital and purchase they and then, appreciate it and... well it's the thing is it's hard for them to spend operating income it's hard okay. to spend operating expenses it's yeah. really easy for them to spend money through a bond Right. And uh, so for them, it's better to pay all that money up front. Yeah. And uh, they don't really care about the cost. Um, but if you have that monthly cost to the cloud, I think a lot of the employees would prefer for their infrastructure to be on the cloud. Sure. But it's it's really more the buying model. So, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, there's some huge facilities here. There's one uh, I know in West Houston here that's got um i forget the name of the company but you know they've got all these uh, mineral oil cooled um servers oh yeah and uh you know they it's it's a yeah it's a big hyperscale yeah uh, facility there no that's i mean we talk about it in the office a lot a lot of people are you know at least with all the energy transition stuff energy conservation stuff and chuck's been talking about it quite a bit lately it's just like with with all the ai stuff that we're currently using and god knows what's to come all of that requires GPUs and server infrastructure, which guess what? All requires electricity and power. <laughs> like it's and re- needs transmission to I mean, right, like, like the- all the infrastructure around that. And so it's one of those things that's like, 
energy demand is not going anywhere. <laughs> like, For sure. Computers yeah. alone are going to continuously, you know, scale that up and out beyond just what individual uh, and businesses are going to anyway. Yeah. But it's or in uh, countries. I mean, like, right. Like it's, you know, when you're starting, <laughs> when you hear how much it costs to run GPT every day and all that stuff, no one thinks about like, oh yeah, there's also a shitload of power going into all of these things. There is. Yeah. It has to come from somewhere. Yeah, electricity comes out of the wall and just, right, you know, sparks the, the, the internet just it just works. You know? <laughs> right. Yeah, my daughter, uh, we, there was like a random pop-up storm that came through Katie last night and it was, we got all of like four seconds of rain, uh, unfortunately, but there was just a bunch of wind and our power went out for like 30 minutes and my daughter was just having like a <laughs> legit panic attack. It's like, she was already doesn't like the dark and then of course she's like you mean there's no there's no white noise for me to sleep with and i can't <laughs> yeah like all this stuff and i'm like yeah welcome to life before <laughs> the internet <laughs> like you know just the internet alone yeah that right. was just such a culture shock to her it's crazy you got anything else uh no i don't think so i, I, say, I would i would ask about data but i assume y'all's data is probably pretty general and not super uh nothing too crazy about it yeah there's really nothing i would say that's crazy about not having it. to so, um, interpret seismic data or yeah any of that no not nothing i was talking to or... a, another co-founder recently that I, I forget exactly how many rows of data he was telling me they had but i mean it was several billion and i was like gosh i'm glad we don't have that problem yeah <laughs> so, yeah i mean my, i guess my only question would be like some of the database selection side up you put firebase and then to mongo and both those are unstructured yeah. i mean with that to provide the flexibility early on when you didn't really know what the scheme was going to look like or yeah it was really to provide the flexibility now going forward we've got like very strict models around it where it's yeah. not um you know we, we we don't have the ability to um kind of iterate on the fly anymore sure uh, we do have models that kind of define the data um in a sense but um that's really the initial reason was uh you know, yeah, just not I mean, that between, you know, having to do it kind of the old fashioned way with a. Now, we've got a new product that's forthcoming that's a sister company in bit out. I can't talk all about it yet, but we went through the whole process. We're mm. using, we're still using Node, we're still using Vue. Yeah. We're using PostgreSQL on that. Okay, nice. So um, we kind of decided to uh, give that a shot on the. Uh, yeah. Well, the, I mean, all these have started adding more kind of uh, JSON blob support Absolutely. and everything too. So, yeah. Um, yeah, you can make things fit, fit things into a rectangular box now. Exactly. <laughs> you couldn't before, but but yeah, no, otherwise I think we can probably jump into the yeah, speed round. Speed round. So let's go. Ask you some random questions about you and in general, just short, quick answers. But uh I'm very curious to know this one. Favorite video and board game. <laughs> video so video game I don't play a lot. Uh probably Mario Kart with my kiddos. So I've yeah. got a uh, we got eight and ten year old sons, nice. and that's probably our Friday night. Once and on one. what platform? Switch. On Switch. Switch. Okay. Switch. Listen. So. Yeah. My. I don't even know why. We just. I think when we moved in the house, I set it up because I had my electronics box right yeah. with the entertainment center, and my wife's Wii was it like the OG Wii was in yeah, there, yeah. and it sat there for years. And then my daughter started getting into like Mario Kart on the iPad or something. And so I was like, oh, well, we've got Mario Kart on the Wii, you know? And then I got down this entire rabbit hole of like, I think you can jailbreak. The, like I was going to buy games for the Wii and stuff. And I was like, I started looking. They're just as expensive as brand new games are. I'm, really? like, I'm not going to spend $60 a game for my kids to play once potentially. And, uh, but if you can find an OG Wii, jailbreaking them can literally be done from the Wii directly. <laughs> like it's, huh. it's crazy. And then you just 
plug a flash drive in, download the 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 games, and go from there. So it's it's pretty fun with young. I've kids. got the I've got the old OG um in, in Nintendo back from like mm-hmm. the okay the yeah, 80s. yeah, but I'm I'm so nervous it's like gonna catch on fire one day. Um, <laughs> you know, it's like I've got it. I pull it out around Christmas time, but yeah. I'm like I always tell my wife like do not make do not leave it plugged in. Right. Yeah. <laughs> we're gonna come home and uh, you know things getting old, but yeah, I always right. hate having to blow in the things. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but um yeah, board yeah. game Monopoly, but we usually yes. play it on the Switch. So, okay. uh, yeah. so that way it's mostly so my kids can't cheat yes. because yeah, right. uh, they start trying to <laughs> shift rules and so forth. But um, it that's about two and a half hours it takes us. We do yeah. it a couple times a month. So nice. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, I usually hand, handle more of the uh, kind of technical questions. But um, what's your favorite managed service? Uh, I mean, I think S three. I mean, yeah. it's, uh, it's incredible. It was the first really AWS service ever. Yeah. And, uh, to not ever, I mean, I used to have to deal with full hard drives all the time, yeah. like on hundreds of cases. So it makes it real nice. Yeah. That's no, really flexible, yeah. but now there's durable. a lot more cooler I mean, advanced services. Out of course. There, but, but I think, but I mean, that's I think, a, yeah. well, what a lot of it, the foundation is built on. No, I, mean, I think it's what accelerated a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, you look at even how many different, you know, even like what Google, uh, storages or Google, their equivalent of blob or whatever they call that yeah, is Google it, Cloud Buckets. Yeah. And those are S3 compliant as well, right? Sure. And, yeah, yeah. Same. And then even like I think some of the even on prem, you know, solutions now that are S3 compliant, like Absolutely. blob storage. So yeah. that's pretty crazy. Yeah. What is do you have a uh just a a favorite or recent person or Git repo that you found that you really like or found really useful by chance? Um I've just started using GYB. It's a uh, Google email backup service. Okay. Oh, nice. That um, was a uh, you know, was on a, a Git repo, and uh, it was kind of an interesting thing to uh, um, be able to uh, backup uh, Gmail instances. I've got I, in my personal email account. I've got all my emails going back from like 1998, yeah. and I've, it's well over a million now. Oh and, yeah. Uh, the, uh, I had to do a migration, and uh, that was about the only feasible way to do it. So <laughs> no, that's pretty sweet. But, um, what's a, uh, piece of technology you're most, you know, excited about, you know, the next, you know, five, 10 years, um, next year, really it's, it goes you so know, fast. <laughs> it might be a long answer, maybe not for lightning round, but you know, everybody's been saying blockchain is going to be big. And I never really thought it was going to be big because yeah. nobody's really ever found a real use for it yet. Um, I think AI is going to be huge. And, yeah. uh, but what I'm worried about is I'm worried about like, like AI generating like a 10 page document and then communicating back with an AI and giving us a 10 page document mm-hmm. response. And at what point do we need something that's 10 pages long if AI is generating it right. and yeah. AI is going to comprehend <laughs> gonna it as well. It, right. So um, that's the one thing that I'm kind of confused about, but um, I think it's going to be, I think it's going to catch on. Yeah. yeah. And then where does liability lie, <laughs> you know, with some of that stuff? Like, absolutely. So, um, you know, I, I don't know. Yeah. So. No, that's, I, I know I've said it before, but when the first few times I used GPT and the language models, that was the first time since like Napster that I had felt that same, like, holy shit, this is going to change everything kind of feeling, mm-hmm. you know, almost 20 years later. Right? Yeah. Like, like definite inflection point. Yeah. <laughs> it's, um, what, what is, what is one people we'll wrap it up? What is one piece of advice that you would give to somebody either starting out, looking to get in it to break into energy tech or transitioning into the energy tech development space that, that you wish you knew when you kind of started your, your journey. 
uh, sell cycles along, find a find yeah. a pilot to work with, uh, and just jump in and do it. Yeah. Um, I've got way too many people I know that just talk about doing something for years and years and years and never actually do it. No. I read the book uh, Build by Tony Fidel very early on, right. and you know his approach is you know get out there and get feedback quickly right. and innovate and uh, uh, move forward. And uh, that's uh, that's one thing I think we've done real well. Uh, we've done plenty of things wrong, but sure. that's one thing that I think we did real well. So. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, no, the sales cycle one <laughs> that yeah. needs to be its own clip. If you're but, coming from the yes. valley or whatever, it's not gonna you're yeah. not gonna get full adoption. Yeah, it's not months. self-service SaaS. But I would say on, the, on the uh, on the whole oil and gas industry, everybody's so nice. And like on the previous industries I've been in, people will just very frankly tell you, "No, I'm not interested." Yeah, hang up on you, whatever. <laughs> oil and gas industry, everybody's incredibly nice. And yeah, they'll take a meeting. They're, they'll obviously hear you out, and uh, that's a that's a great place to be. Yeah, for sure. Although there are times where I felt like in my sales past, it's like I wish someone would just tell me to f off, so I quit, like uh, yeah. waste my time or not, like you know, yeah, but yeah, shit or get out the pot. But. No, it's it's very true though. Like if if you're, most people are willing to take a meeting and just have a conversation out of the the blue, even in most sure. situations. So, where can people find you? How they learn more about bid out? I'm on LinkedIn. I'm Rodney Giles. I'm on Twitter, Rodney Giles. Yeah. Um, Bidout.app is our website. And uh, check us out there. We're all over LinkedIn too. And, uh, you know, feel free to reach out if you have any questions. So. Perfect. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. Yeah. While some may see them as the crazy ones, we see genius. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Goodbye.